Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Andres Acosta, alongside with Dr. Octavia Pickett-Blakely, your co-host for the, our series, Obesity in GI Care, Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative. This series consists of six podcast episodes and three webinars, which provide a comprehensive approach to diagnosis and treatment of obesity, with a special focus on patients with GI comorbidities. In today's episode, we're gonna dive deep into why gastroenterologists and hepatologists should embrace obesity care for the benefit of their patients in practice. We're joined by Dr. Naresh Gunaratnam. It's so great to have you here today. Naresh is a gastroenterologist at Huron Gastro Center for Digestive Care in Michigan. The Huron Gastro Wellness Program addresses nutrition, fitness, sleep, mental health, in a holistic approach with weight loss. He's a strong believer that gastroenterology should provide obesity management as a service line. We're delighted to have you. Thank you for having me. And not only that, Naresh has authored over 50 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters while in private practice and co-authored an article entitled Establishing an Effective Weight Loss Program in a Community Practice, which was published in Clinical Gastro in August of 2019. Naresh is also currently serving on the AGA's Institute Governing Board as a practice counselor. Let's start with the first question. Why do you think gastroenterologists, particularly someone like you, started embracing obesity, start treating obesity, and start working in obesity? Tell us a little bit about your background, how do you get involved, and where you are now? I'm trained as a therapeutic endoscopist, so I spent a lot of time doing USCRCP and actually trained at Mayo Clinic where I did my advanced endoscopy fellowship. And my initial desire to get into obesity was looking at endobariatrics and actually became very involved in endobariatric procedures and started doing some of the balloon procedures and actually invented something that I'm um, working on as well. So my full focus was just endoscopic treatment. But after the first balloons, I found out that the balloons are, or any device is really uh, sort of a temporizing thing till you fix uh, the lifestyle. And, and frankly, personally, I, despite being a gastroenterologist and quote unquote, a specialist in digestive disease, I myself was obese, right? So despite us having the knowledge, we really couldn't pull this off ourselves. At least I couldn't. And so I was 35, 40 pounds heavier. So I was struggling with this. And despite all my training, it's interesting. I knew nothing about nutrition. And what I subsequently understood through my own learning was completely different from what I understood and carried with me for most of my life. And, and frankly, this is a, a critique of, of the gastroenterology training is that we lack really good training in nutrition uh, beyond giving peg tubes and I, a TPN and so forth, because that's irrelevant for 99.9% .9 of the people we treat. So learning the basics of what is good nutrition, what are what is optimal metabolic health, et cetera, that should be integral to fellowship training. So my initial foray into this was through uh, endobariatrics, but then I subsequently had to learn all the lifestyle measures. And, and frankly, the, the, the paper that Andres wrote and the power paper that the AGA uh, sponsored 
I was part of an AGA subcommittee with uh, Sarah Street was uh, one of the co-authors. And I, I really told her I'm really interested in this. And when that paper came out, that really became very exciting to me because I said, well, let me try to see if I can execute what Andres and his co-authors have uh, had written. You can have the theory, but the practicality and pulling it off is the, is where the magic happens. And I started my program in May of 2017 using the foundational uh, guide from the power paper and then slowly subsequently evolved. Great. That's amazing. There's so much that we could um, elaborate on from just your initial comments. And Considering that you you actually mentioned that a lack of training and fellowship is is what many physicians, not only gastroenterologists, but even primary care physicians cite as a barrier to engaging in uh, obesity care. What resources outside of the white paper that you mentioned, the power paper, would you recommend for those who wanted to get involved, want to engage in obesity care? What other resources would you recommend? Sure. One book that I read, which is a um, book by Dr. Michael Greger, G-R-E-G-E-R, called How Not to Die. And that has over, it's well-referenced, 2,000 references. And it, it kind of blew my mind saying, oh my God, I don't understand any of this stuff. And I have I think I've literally read or listened to it five, six, seven times. He subsequently has a second book called How Not to Diet. And again, uh, lots of uh, evidence-based information. The second, actually, this is what I quote-unquote prescribe to a lot of my patients is actually a Netflix documentary called Game Changers, which basically is a really entertaining uh, documentary done by James Cameron, who did Titanic. And it's basically talks about the basics of nutrition and really advocates for a plant predominant diet, which we subsequently have learned is very important for long-term weight loss or getting most of your calories from low glycemic index, high fiber foods. And it really makes a compelling argument for why that may be something that we should embrace. And then finally, I, I found uh, a lot of, there are really good podcasts. The one that I really like is there's a thing called the exam room. Um, that's really well done. And then there's one called feel better, live more again, done by a physician in England, where I find a lot of really good comprehensive wellness information from meditation to exercise, to nutrition. And it's just entertaining to listen to. And there's one other called Rich Roll, R-I-C-H Roll, R-O-L-L. And that uh, also, again, is entertaining for me to listen to. It's uh, fascinating. Uh, and I agree with you, Naresh. There's so much information out there that it's eye-opening and uh, talks about the importance of addressing nutrition and obesity. So as a gastroenterologist, what brought you to this decision into nutrition and obesity? How you evolve your practice from these initial concepts into now predominant you know, nutrition-based and obesity and metabolic disorders. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, fortunately in my practice, I had a pretty supportive board because when I first started <laughs> talking about, I wanted to bring some of this into my practice, they thought I was crazy because basically, you know, I'm a therapeutic endoscopy, so I just go do stuff, you know, and then for me to start talking about metabolic health and lifestyle, they're like, you know, stay in your lane, dude. And so- I had to convince themselves and said, look, this is very important. And a lot of what we deal with, right? You know, reflux, fatty liver disease, severity of pancreatitis, gallstones, colon cancer, et cetera. All you can, if you say, what are the root cause? Pancreatic cancer is obesity linked. And even some of the dysbiosis associated with 
the microbiome can be attributed to lifestyle and diet. Most of what you deal with is lifestyle related and impacting the lifestyle from everything from sleeping to eating to moving can affect every aspect of what we deal with from diuretic constipation to reflux uh, fatty liver. And so I think they were supportive in me essentially doing a pilot. And in the pilot, we started to have success and then we just kept rolling. And now we are at uh, you know five years and over 600 patients and we've had two publications. So we're very happy about it. And frankly, the reward that I get from a lot of uh, patients who said not only had they impacted their fatty liver, but every aspect of their life has improved. Their sleep has improved. Their mood has improved. Their confidence has improved. I've gotten more hugs, tears, letters uh, about how every aspect of their life, including marriages and so forth. Uh, it's really, really, really fun because this is the root cause of so many things that affect people both physically and psychologically. So if I were not already practicing obesity medicine, you would have convinced me with that answer. And I think over time, we all have come to understand that, as you mentioned, just about all of the comorbidities that we manage as gastroenterologists and hepatologists are directly linked to obesity, and we can indeed make an impact. But for those who are still on the fence, can you give us an example, or is there um, another paradigm in GI and hepatology where historically it wasn't a part of our practice and over time it has you know evolved to become within the scope of our general practice sure you know I, I was trained in sigmoidoscopy and I was told that if I went and did primary care I would do colorectal scan cancer screening by doing fit tests and then uh, screening sigmoidoscopy and uh, you know in the 80s 90s a lot of primary care did screening sigmoidoscopies and I think now, with the advent of screening colonoscopies, that slowly has taken over. And I think gastroenterologists have taken it over. And now I think we kind of own screening colonoscopy. In the same way, I think as medical professionals, we have to have a paradigm shift in the way we think about problems, right? If, you, if you're diabetic, you know, we're trained, okay, now let me figure out how, to, how much metformin to give you. Whereas I think the more fundamental question is, why do you have diabetes in the first place? And what can we reverse that? And we do this all the time. Like last week, I had a colleague who uh, referred a patient for an upper endoscopy appropriately uh, for refractory reflux. The guy was 300 pounds. He was obese white man at high risk for Barrett's, et cetera. So appropriately, we did the endoscopy, but there was no mention of the fact that he's 300 pounds, BMI is 40. Okay. And so that is the root cause. So our answer to him can't be, okay, we're going to double up your Nexium, but rather saying, Hey, you know, you're a 50 year old man. Now you're at risk because of your comorbidities, you're at risk for heart attacks and strokes and cancer. So let's try to address root cause. Part of the reason we don't address it is we don't know what to say until I learned everything that I did not know and what fellowship did not treat, uh, uh, train me to understand I couldn't have that conversation in a meaningful way. What we used to do is say, yes, Mr. Jones, you have an obesity related problem, fill in the blank, fatty liver reflux, please go home, exercise and eat right and see me in a year. And we all know what happens. Yeah, I think what you mentioned is so important for our practice. And I think we see a lot of refractory cases, as you said, and I like to, to emphasize that we see a lot of refractory cases in the patient is already treated, you know, sometimes double PPI, maybe already had surgery and intervention for, for or had already a condition. 
And we keep ignoring, as you very nicely, the root cause. So now that you have built this and you have understand the problem, how would you recommend other people to start saying, maybe I should embrace obesity, maybe I should bring the price? Where would you recommend someone starts? One way to think about how to frame obesity management, we actually put it under the hepatology section and we treat it as a fatty liver reversal program. And so this is part of our approach to fatty liver treatment. You know, as most people know that 10% body weight loss is associated with improvement in fatty liver disease and reflux and so forth. So our approach to patients with fatty liver is to say, okay, you have fatty liver disease. We have some clinical trials that they can enroll in. Uh, but the most impactful way to do this without drugs is to do uh, weight loss. But losing weight by yourself is associated with failure in a 90 plus percent of in the literature. The practices should really start embracing it and saying this is no different than offering whatever other treatment options, whether you do, uh, you know, radiofixia ablation for Baird's esophagus. And I think part and parcel with this is that AGA and other organizations really need to start having a, perhaps, uh, you know, a two, three day intensive course where people who are interested learn the basics and then uh, not only get the, the knowledge, but from a practical execution perspective, what I have done in my program is that you need a physician champion, somebody who really says, okay, I buy this and I live it and, and embrace it, who then can lead the program. But most of the program actually can be run by uh, advanced practice professionals. So uh, PAs and nurse practitioners. So I think if a practice is thinking about doing this, you, you don't have to get a lot of physicians to start doing this. You just need one champion and you can have two or three, depending on the size of your practice, uh, APPs who are also very motivated by this work. And that's a very economical, cost-effective way to scale up this program in your practice. Great. Thank you. I want to go back to something that you mentioned very early on when you sort of discussed your journey and your entry into obesity medicine as a part of your practice. Initially, you were trained for endobariatrics. And I guess this is more of a philosophical question because I think when I hear oftentimes I'm interested in obesity, I'm interested in nutrition, sometimes what that translates into for people who like to have their hands on the scope is endobariatric procedures. But can you just give your philosophical approach on what obesity care um, actually means? Yeah, I think it has to be sort of a pyramid sort of approach. Okay, so the first uh, approach, I think it has to be an intensive lifestyle intervention. And that's what we offer. And if that does not work, then you keep adding things. Okay, that, that could be drugs. And, and frankly, started prescribing a lot of drugs. And then I learned that a lot of the side effects of the, uh, of the drugs were very hard to deal with. And then I embraced the lifestyle. So I think uh, you start with lifestyle, then you keep adding things uh, where if it's drugs uh, from fatty liver drugs, or you know, some of these new diabetes related drugs have their side effects, quote unquote, uh, is associated with weight loss. So that could be held. And then as we get more and more understanding, I think we're eventually getting to personalized medicine where you're going to look at genomics and you can look at metabolomics and you can look at microbiome. And this is where I think the future is very exciting to me because it's going to be personalized medicine where I think we've all seen the anecdote of individual A does, you know, diet one, they, they have fabulous outcomes. They're showing before and after pictures. 
individual B does the same exact thing and nothing happens. And we always say, oh, individual B must be cheating or eating cookies at night. And, and a lot of times, and this is from my experience, is I have patients who literally cry in the office and saying, Dr. Gunaratnam, I'm doing everything you tell me to do. And then sincerely do this. They're going to the gym for an hour. They're eating plant-based and nothing's working. And I think that's where we'll learn about metabolic rate, microbiome. And in the future, it's going to be individual A is going to get individual A's diet. Individual B is going to get B's diet. And uh, that's going to be looking at glycemic indexes and, um, and really become very tailored to the individual. And that's where I think it'll be really good. You know, in our program, about 65% of our patients lose 10% of their body weight at six months a year. And we actually have an oral presentation at DDW uh, demonstrating we actually dem uh, reverse fatty liver disease, which by fiber scans and HSI and um, FIB4 scores and so forth, which is our end point of success. So that's exciting, but you know, obviously we, we need to go get better and better. Uh, so I think that's where I'm excited to embrace this as the last third of my career. I'm, I'm really excited to continue doing this kind of work. Well, you mentioned all these things and I think it's, it's fascinating. And let me talk a little bit more about the present. The present is the obesity pandemia in our clinics and NASH pandemia. We know that obesity is affecting every single topic in gastroenterology and hepatology. So once you have decided where you're going to put this and what is the, where is the house going to be for nutrition and obesity management, how do you build the practice then? And give us a little bit more about the multidisciplinary team, who are the key people and how do you build that as maybe one of the last few topics that we'll be covering on the, on the podcast? Sure. Um, uh, this has evolved and, you know, I uh, hope people can benefit from my six years of mistakes. So we have what we call a navigator. So a navigator is actually somebody with a great empathic personality. They don't need to have any advanced degrees, but somebody who really connects with people. And I, I call it the hug sign. We have this uh, woman called Renita who uh, within five minutes, everyone's hugging her, okay? Just, she just connects emotionally so well with people. And that's the person that you need. That's the qualification for a, a, an effective navigator. Then we have uh, two dietitians, And the way we set up our program is that we initially put everybody on a meal replacement. And the reason we do a meal replacements is it's a tool to control behavior more than anything. Because if someone is eating three meals a day from McDonald's, and then I say, hey, uh, Mr. Jones, why don't you go eat a plant predominant diet? The probability of me succeeding is like zero. Okay. So what I do is to say, okay, look, whatever food behaviors you have and eating habits, I'm going to take a three month time out from that. And I'm going to put you on this meal replacement, which meals replacements are low calorie replacements, which basically are shakes, bars, and soup that control the calories and induce ketosis. It does two things. Number one, everyone gets the same quote unquote diet. So if I tell 10 different people to eat the same thing, they're going to eat 10 different things. Whereas here, every calorie is consumed and every behavior is consistent. During that time, we take that three-month pause where uh, their, their diet is very fixed and controlled, and then we educate them with weekly online support groups. So the online support group is led by a dietitian, and we talk about what we call the four pillars. The 
Four pillars are nutrition, sleep, movement, and mindfulness. And every week there is a topic relevant to that. We talk about the importance of plant predominant diet and diet beyond recipes. We don't get into the recipes and all that because the belief is that, oh, I'm going to tell you about plant predominant diet and then I'm going to throw a recipe. We don't do that at all. We actually say, okay, here is why a low glycemic index food is important. Here's how it changes your microbiome. Here's how it helps your, your health overall, decrease your risk heart disease, stroke, et cetera. And you fill them with knowledge so that when they have three months from now, when they have the opportunity to uh, choose A or B, they always choose A because they have the understanding of why that food is gonna impact their health. And we found that to be very effective. Then other unrecognized areas of health, including sleep, lack of sleep is an unrecognized cause of uh, obesity. Uh, lack of sleep increases stress hormones, which then uh, makes you crave um, uh, high glycemic index foods. Um, so optimizing sleep, which is a, um, a chronic problem, and it's just making everything worse. And then we uh, talk about movement, but we don't talk about getting Peloton bikes, but just, you know, getting your 7,500 steps, walking, natural movements. We actually teach them body weight exercises. We try to keep it as simple as possible, optimizing walking. And then finally, we, and which I think is the most important part of this is we uh, have classes in mindfulness and learning how to control your brain. Basically, we tell them this is exercise for your brain. We learn how to live proactively as opposed to reactively. And so teaching meditative techniques and a lot of our patients benefit from this outside of this. And they really say that has been extraordinarily helpful in controlling their uh, compulsive behaviors, which may have led to obesity. And I tell everybody the hardest organ to fix is the one between your ears. And if you learn how to fix that, then everything else starts working. And uh, remarkably, that aspect of our program uh, perhaps is the most impactful, surprisingly. I, I, when I started the program, I wouldn't have thought that, but it is actually very helpful. We have um, a really good teacher who does mindful meditation. And uh, it's again, on uh, done on a virtual platform allowing people to engage. And we keep all the uh, classes small. So we don't have 50 people on, on a call, but we're limited to 10. That's wonderful. Just uh, in terms of the composition of the team. So you have your hugger in chief, you have your two dietitians, and earlier you mentioned this a nice way to leverage advanced practice providers uh, in this setting. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you use advanced practice providers and how often you as a physician may see the patient and what that looks like? Absolutely. Both the APP or I um, work together and he or I can see the patient initially. Typically, if I see the patient, I'll hand it off to him. So I'll uh, do a lot of the introductory um, communications. And we basically talk at a very high level about the program, why we think it's important and how it'll impact their GI condition. Then the execution is done by the APP. We also have a data analyst that helps us keep track of our data. So once a week, we actually have this meeting for hour to two hours where we review the outcomes of everybody. We put them in um, spreadsheets and into groups and say, how's group one doing? And we put them into what we call red, yellow, green categories. And, you know, green meaning 10% body weight loss. And we want to essentially get the reds, uh, uh, reds to the yellows, yellows to the green. 
And our view of success is how many of our people in the groups get to the green category. And then we have a deep dive to say, okay, why is Mrs. Jones stuck? How can we talk to about her particular issue? And so it's really, it's a really fun exercise because it's true population health. We're discussing that one patient and with input from the dietitian, from the navigator and from the physicians and the APPs. And we're all discussing the same patient and everybody has a little piece of the pie. It's just beautiful. Well, you're building this, this very nice program. They clearly, the clinical significance is there. One of the most of the people thinking is how do we get reimbursed? How do we get paid? to help our patients and treat the root cause of many of their problems? We have sort of a mixed model, meaning that a lot at 100%, and we had to figure that out. So we actually charge a fee. And I tell people that we have an onboarding fee and then we have a monthly fee that we charge for the support groups. And those are professionals who do this and uh, the patients are willing to pay that. And interestingly, if you ask the people on the other side of our program, was this worth it? And they would say, I would have spent five times as much for this program because my life is so transformed. And interestingly, 20 to 30% of the patients who join our program are referrals from other patients who've gone through the program. And then they're, they become incredible, passionate advocates because, you know, every time I go to my diabetic doctor, he just gives me more and more pills. He didn't, he, I never knew diabetes would go away. Okay. And they're shocked. I, I mean, I had a conversation with a guy who uh, wasn't as, uh, I was seeing him for GI bleeding. Okay. Uh, and uh, so he was on Plavix and he had his cardiac stents and uh, multiple cardiac stents. And then as a side conversation, I said, you know, tell me about your diet. And he's like, well, I eat, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all about being strong and I eat a lot of protein. I eat a lot of red meats. And I said, you know, do you know that that may be leading to some of your cardiac disease, you've already had four stents and maybe, you know, I told him about the movie and all the other stuff. And I said, you know, your diet is directly contributing to your heart disease. And he was floored. He's like, why did not somebody tell me about this? Why did my cardiologist not tell me about this? And he's actually joined our program, you know? So I went in with our GI bleed consult and suddenly he's like, you're, you told me more in, than I've heard from doctors in 20 years. And it's not a drug. I'm not prescribing a drug. I'm saying, look, your lifestyle has a huge role to play in your health. Wow. That's a really impactful story. And actually a perfect segue to my last question for you, which is your definition of success in a patient who you're managing their, obes- their obesity. You know, in gastroenterology, we're trained. We're looking for mucosal healing for IBD. We're looking for decompression of the bile duct, normal LFTs after the ERCP. And a patient who you're treating for obesity, how do you define success? We, we kind of frame it through the portal of um, fatty liver disease. So we do a fiber scan on everybody. And we basically say 10% body weight loss. They've actually done some really nice studies out of Cuba where they did pre and post liver biopsies on patients and showed that at 10% body weight loss, you have histological remission or improvement in fibrosis and people with fatty liver disease. And so that's our mar- marker of success. And we are very honest with our patients. And we say, look, 65% of you guys will get better if you go through our program. The other 30 plus percent, we're going to try to help you figure it out. But, and we're not smart enough yet, but with the help of people like Andres, we'll, we'll figure it out one day. 
And I think I'm absolutely convinced we're going to get better and better as more and more gastroenterologists and other smart people get engaged, we're going to get better and better. The 10% body weight loss is our metric of success, but also resolution of reflux of getting off medications. And we actually do an SF12 on all of our patients before they get on the quality of life index. And we say, it's interesting when, when patients have lost 10% body weight, I always ask them, in what way do you feel better? And the uniform answer is I have more energy, right? I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> but they, it's just that word condenses so many aspects of their life. They have more energy their, you know, their work is better. They're not depressed. The quality of the work that they do is better. Their relationships are better. And so they're for a non-quantifiable word, but they just generally are happier people. So we have sort of a holistic, we want some metrics, including improvement in hemoglobin A1C, cholesterols, uh, fiber scans. We do pre and post fiber scans. We actually have this machine that does 3D body imaging, which shows a body weight composition, total bat, waist to hip ratios and so forth. So they, can, they essentially get an avatar of themselves saying, oh my God, this is what I look like. And that should be very helpful because we, we're like, do you actually want to go back to this? And they're like, no way do I want to do that. So I don't know if that's the right answer for you, what you were asking for, but it's, we have some quantifiable and then, uh, and some more uh, subjective evaluation. That's great. This has been a, a beautiful conversation. And, you know, I know we can keep chatting for a very long time among the three of us. Naresh, first I want to thank you for your time and what you're doing for your patients and also to share how you have shared your knowledge with all of us. So I also want to thank everyone who have tuned in for this first episode of our Obesity GI Care Series, Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative. This could have not been done with a, a supported from an educational grant from Novo Nordics. So I want to finalize again by thanking you uh, on behalf of all of us. Yes, I also want to just echo uh, Andres' uh comments. This was a fantastic conversation. And it's always exciting for me to discuss um, obesity and obesity care with similar minds. I'd like to wrap up this uh, segment with uh, our obesity trivia question. What is the U.S. state with the lowest prevalence of obesity? And if you stay tuned for our next podcast, then we'll give you the answer then. Continue listening for our next episode and for additional resources from this program, including the release of additional podcast episodes and webinars, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.